pray together. Father in heaven, we just thank you that that is so true. That we have grace. That grace that's marvelous, it's infinite, it's matchless. And it's just unexplainable to think that you would give us what we didn't deserve. So tonight we are going to watch you unfold this chapter 4 of Daniel and we're going to see your grace. And But yeah, what you did for Nebuchadnezzar, you did for, for each and every one of us. So Father, may our eyes be opened again. Because sometimes we, we can talk grace, we can talk salvation, we can talk the cross. But Father, we want to make sure that all of those truths affect our heart. So then it affects the way we live life. And the ups and the downs that we have something so solid to hang on to, that we literally cling to our Savior. Father, we are so grateful that we have your written word, that we can, that we can uh, utilize your very spirit that lives within us so that we can take the words that are on these pages and just actually hear you, hear you talk to us, hear you instruct us. Father, tonight I know that there's many even though we don't have actual prayer request time, Father, I know that either people have told me or you know what they are. We all come with some need. We come with some request. Whether it's, well, it can be a sickness. It can be a wayward child. It can be a spouse. It can, it can be a doctor's appointment. It can be a decision that we that is needed. Father, there's just so many things that want to bring us down and want to panic us and worry us. And, and Father, we, we know that you are available. You are standing there just ready to summon us by name. And Lord, may we have the assurance that when we walk through the, the waters, the rivers, the fire, Father, may those, verse, those verses in Isaiah 43, may we keep our bookmark there because we are going to need to go back there many times that you will not let us be burned. And we can walk through the most fiery of fires. And Father, just as Nebuchadnezzar saw that person, that, that special, that, un, that different person walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Father, may we rest assured that that same person is walking every step with us. Father, we want to take these lessons and we want to learn. We just don't want to learn more facts about the book of Daniel, but we want to be able to relate them to our lives now. So, Father, we give you this hour. May we stay tuned in. May we want to hear from you. Even if it's convicting and challenging sometimes, may we so want to hear from you because we know you love us and want the best for us. And we pray this all in our Savior's name who makes life so worth living. Amen. All right. Let's see your Bibles. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. Okay, it's Daniel chapter 4 today. So where did we leave off last week? Well, it's a pretty easy story, isn't it? I mean, we saw that Daniel interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. That whole thing about that that big statue and that head of, that was made out of gold, and Daniel told him that that was that was him. And I think all of a sudden he just turned off to listening to everything else, even though Daniel said that he was given 
the ability to interpret that dream for Nebuchadnezzar's sake so he would learn what's ahead, so he'd be ready and prepared. So um, obviously, you know, that whole thing went to his head and he, he, didn't, he didn't get ready and prepared. He didn't look at the fact that there were four kingdoms and they were all, all going to be taken over that there is only one supreme king, kingdom that will reign forever. Somehow he didn't, he didn't uh, let that sink in. So last week we saw him build this, this um, image, 90 feet, eight stories high, nine feet wide, commanded everybody, all the nations, all the people to bow down in worship. We saw how those astrologers more than likely were very jealous of these three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were in positions that they probably felt they should have. And how did these Hebrews take over? And so they were, they were looking, they were watching for them to make a mistake, and to them this was a blinger. And so they went running to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, these three Hebrews are not bowing down to your image. They won't worship our gods. Nebuchadnezzar goes to the three. Is it true? You won't worship? You won't worship this image? And then we heard this classic line. We do not have to defend ourselves on this. You talk about a strength. I mean, even though the punishment, they knew the punishment was the fiery furnace. And they said, you know, we know we have a God that's able to deliver us from that fiery furnace. But if he doesn't, we know he's able. But if he doesn't, we will not worship you. I mean, that was such a, I mean, try to put that into today. Don't you want that kind of, I mean, I don't have to defend myself. The Bible says, and this is what God instructs. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to have to defend and prove. No, I don't have to do that. I just loved their demeanor, their, their calmness, their sureness. And then they were, you know, they were taken into the fire furnace. The strong soldiers, remember, the strongest of the soldiers, they were they bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were going to throw them in the seven times hotter than normal furnace, and they dropped dead when they got near the door. And, and yet the three went into the furnace. Remember, we said last week that there was a little white space between verse 23 and 24. In that little white space, we gave Nebuchadnezzar the time to say, well, there, I'm going to show you, you better obey me, or this is what's going to happen. And I think he probably just was gloating for a few seconds, expecting to see their fried skeleton. And all of a sudden, he leaped up. And he said, you know, we just put three in there? And all of a sudden, there's a fourth one in there. And he knew that fourth one looked different. And so then when the, when the men came out, when the three men came out of the furnace, they weren't singed. They didn't smell like smoke. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar says these words. Instead of worshiping the image that I erected here, we are now, all nations, all language, all peoples, are going to bow to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that's, that's a little bit of progress. But, but there is a big fat warning there too. Because we can proclaim his greatness. We can talk about his majesty. We can know all what he's done. 
But if by chance he doesn't become yours personally, if by chance it's not real, he doesn't change your heart condition, which then changes you. You haven't experienced that transformation. It's personal. He saves one at a time. And, I mean, you can proclaim like Nebuchadnezzar did all the time, but unless he is yours, all of that was just a bunch of, bunch of words. And you can tell by the fourth chapter. So as we go into the fourth chapter, I, I was a little confused at first with the first three verses. At first, I didn't quite understand who was talking or what it was all about. And then all of a sudden, it became clear to me that Nebuchadnezzar is pretty much saying, when we start the fourth chapter, he's pretty much saying, do I ever have a story for you? And that's why we sang that tonight. I love to tell the story. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 of Daniel has a story to tell. This is what happened to him. And he, in fact, you read the words. He says, I take pleasure in telling you this. I mean, it wasn't all pleasant. I mean, the story is just, I mean, it's not every day somebody grows feathers and claws like birds. I mean, that's very unusual, but God does what he has to do to get our attention. And so Nebuchadnezzar in the first three verses is pretty much him saying, I'm going to tell you my story and what a story it is. And it got me thinking, okay, how can I relate that? If somebody were ever to ask you, what is your story? I know we've all come to the cross. Salvation is the same for all of us. It's through the blood of Jesus. I, I get that. But yet we all have different stories on how that all came to be. Who is the one that told you? Where were you? How did you get to know Jesus better and better? Who's responsible in your life? What experience did you have? Maybe what camp did you go to? You know, some experience that you can honestly say, that made a difference in my life. We all have a story. And if by chance you haven't thought about your story lately, maybe it's maybe tonight before you fall asleep. Maybe just think, what is my story? If somebody like Nebuchadnezzar would come up to you and say, I have got a story for you. Let me tell you my story. Would you be able to follow suit and say, and do I ever have a story for you? So as we start this chapter... It goes to the peoples, the nations, and men of every language who live in the world. Again, I repeat, I repeat, Babylon is the nation of the world. I mean, this is the one rule order. And Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the one world order. Now, you know, I think we've seen from the dream of chapter 2... I think that we have pretty much seen that one world orders because we will talk more about it in the later chapters. But, you know, when Babylon went to Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia, um, the Greek Empire came after Medo-Persia, and then the Roman Empire came after the Greek Empire. These one world orders don't work. 
Now, in my personal opinion, you can take or leave it, but I think this world is going to try for one more of those one world orders. And you just want to shake whoever tries to do that because you want to say, why don't you read Daniel 2? And you will see that one world orders do not work. Because you see, people then start thinking and start worshiping a person or it just doesn't work. But anyways, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the world. And he said, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. When you read that, didn't you just want to shout hallelujah? Didn't you just want to say, boy, he really will save anybody. There is, there is no one, if they come in repentance, there is no one that he will not save. Because all of a sudden, did you notice who he's talking to here? He says, it's my pleasure to tell you that now I am, I am, I am, I want to tell you about the most high God and how he has performed wondrous signs for me. So it's like he's introducing this and he said, but it didn't come easy. So let me tell you the details. I was a hard nut to crack. So he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at home in my palace. I was contented and prosperous. Now I want to stop right there a minute just to make sure that when you see that word content, that you don't think it's the same kind of content that Paul wrote in Philippians where he says that in whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. I mean, Paul is writing that in the worst of situations, in the worst of circumstances, in the worst of prisons. And he says, I have learned real true contentment is when you have got your heart condition right and you are trusting the one sovereign God who you believe his will for you is good, pleasing, and perfect. That's not the contempt we're talking about here. Because there's no way Nebuchadnezzar could have that kind of contentment. Because that only comes with a true, real relationship with your Savior. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't there yet. So he is content with what? Himself. He's content. It's kind of like, and we can fall into this once in a while. It's easy to sing our praises. It's easy to shout hallelujah. It's easy to just talk of Jesus when everything's going good. When everything is going good, then it's so easy to be able to just talk about what a wonderful God we serve. And this is exactly where Nebuchadnezzar is. Things in the kingdom, everything is going good. He's enjoying the, his prosperity. He's content because there's no enemies coming against him right now. Everything's fine. I had a dream that made me afraid. Somehow the Lord seemed to work getting Nebuchadnezzar's attention with these dreams. 
now this particular dream. And it's like, if this doesn't show grace, I know we sing Marvelous Grace so often when we get together, but it's probably one of my favorite songs because I see it in every lesson. And even though you don't actually see the word grace, the fact that he gave Nebuchadnezzar another chance, he gave him another dream. And so he says, I had a dream as I was laying in my bed. The images and the visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So he obviously, remember in chapter 2, he couldn't quite explain the dream. That's why he needed Daniel to tell him the dream as well as the interpretation. This time, I think the dream was very clear and it terrified him. He said, so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, when the encanters, the astrologers, the diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. And then you see these words in parentheses. And I think Nebuchadnezzar wanted us to see that where he was, where he was in his so-called spiritual life, actually it was zero spiritual life, but he said, now remember, his name really wasn't Daniel. I changed it to Belshazzar because I wanted to get his God totally out of his life, even his name. And I wanted to make sure that, that his name was after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So this is the old Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what he thought he needed to do. There were so many times in this chapter when I was reading Nebuchadnezzar's story. And he thought this. And, and like, like when he said, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I'm thinking, what a funny man. He has no idea what he's talking about. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And no mystery is too difficult for you. A little buttering up. But yet also he believed that there was something super power supernatural in him and because he had no understanding of the Holy Spirit and, and God intervening and that God is sovereign and he's in it all because he had no understanding all he could explain it as that he had some connection with the gods these are the visions I saw while lying in my bed I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land its height was enormous. Now, that's an understatement. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. That's quite a tree. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter. The birds of the air lived in its branches. And from it, every creature was fed. Wow, what a tree. I'm sure that vision, he's looking, and he just, I mean, the detail 
The leaves were beautiful. The fruit was abundant. Every creature fed from it. But then everything changed. What a difference. In the vision, I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. Boy, that was good, wasn't it? How the, the way the Lord had the vision so that he could see that this voice or this, this holy one wasn't coming from anywhere around but from up. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, even though they're going to be bound with iron and bronze, let that stump and those roots remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Now, again, isn't that grace? Isn't that just so amazing? Because by him saying, I'm cutting you off at the stump, buddy. But you know, with God, there's still, there's, there's still hope. The very fact that the roots are still to stay intact, the stump is still, there's life there. There's still hope there. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. Till seven times pass for him, which is seven years. Now, I wonder where I should, uh, I have this real love for the number seven. I, I just think that the number seven, um, I mean, we all know that the number seven is symbolic in Scripture for the number for perfection or completeness, mainly completeness. So I just did, on my own time kind of thing, I just thought, I just wanted to search out a little more information about that number seven. Because you see, the number seven started in, Gen in Genesis, and we see it go all the way through Revelation. And in the Bible, there is over 700 times that the number seven is used. Now, I didn't look up all 700, but I did, I did find it quite amazing that when I did look up certain things, that when I counted it, it compiled itself to seven. So I thought I would just tell you, maybe, maybe you've known some of these already, but there are seven statements. I mean, we've all heard about the seven sayings of the cross. But I really never looked at it thinking that it was the complete number. Jesus said completely what needed to be said on the cross. Not a word less, not a word more. In the Lord's Prayer, there are seven petitions. In the book of John... Jesus refers to himself in seven metaphors. Guide the bread of life. Yeah. 
I'm the light of the world. In the, in the Gospel of John, seven metaphors. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, the Messiah is described using seven qualities. When Naaman, the leper, came to Elisha, Elisha told him to wash in the Jordan seven times. God's word in, in Psalm 12 or 6, God's word is flawless, like gold refined seven times. And this one, too, was so good. I, I just never counted it. I never thought about it. The rainbow consists of seven colors. So there's, there's many, many ways that we can see that the seven number is complete. And so here when you read it about Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to take seven years. We also know that in Revelation that the tribulation is going to last seven years. Whether that's symbolic or literal, it says seven. We also know Jesus said, how many times are you supposed to forgive someone? Seventy times seven. So I could go on and on. But God knew that it would take seven years to complete Nebuchadnezzar so that his understanding would be that God is supreme and that he's not. The decision, he goes on in verse 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. So even he even heard the purpose. He heard the purpose. He said that it was announced by messengers. The holy ones declared the verdict. And this is what he said. So that the living, all of the people, now all of us, that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Boy, we should not forget that verse. When we have to go through another election or whatever, whenever we have a when we're tempted to think that, oh no, what's going to happen now? If we were really honest, we put more faith in our government, in the leaders of the government, and we have a fit when things don't go the way we want, and we get nervous. Oh no, instead, what do we read here? God wants the living, not just Nebuchadnezzar, he wants all of us. To know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of men. And he's the one that gives them to anyone he wishes. And sets them and sets over them sometimes the lowliest of men. He's up to something. When are we going to learn that? That it's God that's doing all the controlling. And he knows who's going to be put where, when, and why. And I think he's telling us, his children, I think he basically is saying to us, 
Just wait and watch. Just wait and watch. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me, tell me, Belshazzar, what does in me? For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can. Because in the spirit of the whole, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, then Daniel, also called Belshazzar. I love the way now we hear Daniel. Now Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. Now I got to tell you, I, I mean, I believe that every word is true, but sometimes I think that in, in the different versions, sometimes I don't always, that's why I go to another version sometimes. And the thing that bugged me about this is that it said D- Daniel was perplexed and he was terrified. And I, from what I have seen in Daniel and who his God is, I just don't believe he was terrified. Because I went back to the beginning of this vision and it said Nebuchadnezzar was terrified. And because the two are so completely different, they both can't be terrified. So I went to King James. And I have to say, I didn't like their word. I didn't like their word better. And that word is troubled. He was perplexed and he was troubled. Daniel was definitely troubled. And why was he troubled? Because he didn't want to have to tell Nebuchadnezzar this. I think he, I don't think he took any joy of saying, uh, this, is what, this is what this means. This is what's going to happen to you. I think a lot of times that's why judgment isn't talked about. Because we don't want to hear about it. And I think sometimes we have to talk about it no matter what. But I think we can be like Daniel. We can have to tell the truth. That judgment is going to happen. It's not something that we can pretend by putting it out of our mind that it's not going to be. By the time you leave here tonight, I'm going to read a passage of scripture that you are just going to love. But there will be no question about your future and what's going to happen. But Daniel had to tell him the truth, but I think he did it with tears in his eyes. And I think sometimes it's hard to tell people. I think it's hard to come right out and say, if you do not listen, if you do not repent, if you don't take that walk to the cross yourself, It's a personal walk. You go with nobody but yourself. And if you don't, if you don't see the terms, the gospel terms, there's no other way. As much as you want to try to think that there might be a little 
different. We approach, we can come at it a little different way. No, salvation is found in none other. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And that is taking that humbling walk. See, the word in this particular chapter is pride. And pride is when you're taking God's position. And you would not ever say that. But when you are not clinging to him, when you're, when you're not 24-7 holding on to him for dear life, then sometimes I think there's a little Nebuchadnezzar in all of us. We get a little self-sufficient. And pride gets in there. And I, in our West Michigan area, I'm here to tell you, it is so true that we believe the lies that your worth is based on what you've achieved, maybe how much money you have, what you, what you, um, your social position, or name it. A lot of human nature, we look at people in those categories. And that's a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in us. When God here is trying to say that it's never through pride that you come to the cross. It's through absolute humility. It's knowing who you're not and who you need. And this is the message that he's trying to get across to Nebuchadnezzar, but I think it is so relevant to us today. Because I think we do get a little convinced that in this area, that it's just easy. It's just automatic. But everyone, all have sinned, and everyone must walk the cross. And this is what he's trying to say. So, okay, now. You, O king, you saw the message well, oh no, I got to go back. I'm sorry. I, I lost my train of thought. So anyway, he said, Belshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and in its meaning to your adversaries. See, I got so passionate there about making sure that we all see the, the gospel 101 here. This is so the gospel message. And even though... Daniel is saying, I wish that this message was for your enemies or for your adversaries. As much as we don't want to say to somebody, unless you come to the cross, unless you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, you're going to hell. I know that's just, we don't like to talk like that. But I think this is what Daniel is up against here, that we all are. There's only one choice. There's only one of two choices that you can choose. There's not a, a bazillion choices. You either believe with all of your heart or you suffer the consequences and the punishment is severe. And we have to know, we've got to say the whole story. Nebuchadnezzar is willing to say the whole story. He now understands what his condition really was and how he needed 
is what I call Gospel 101. We all need it. So Daniel says, oh, I wish it was for your enemies and your adversaries, but the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places to its branches and its branches for the birds of the air. I mean, it's magnificent. And Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to know that that is you. That's you, O king. You are that tree. Now, it's true that Nebuchadnezzar probably liked that part. He liked it. Wow. I'm the answer for everybody. But look what pride does. Pride blinds you from seeing your real self. And I couldn't help but go back to 2 Samuel 12, and I just have to read this story. You know it so well. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He raised it and he grew with he grew it up like with his children. He shared his food with it, drank from his cup. He even slept the, the little youth slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. See, sometimes pride can't even see your own sin. And you better hope you've got someone in your life that loves you so much that with the right motive, of course, shows you. Because pride just blinds you. Okay, we go on from there. After he said, you are, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to different parts of the earth. But like the vision, everything changes now. You, O king, you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and stump, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of the heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. 
You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will live, you will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Did you notice that when you were reading this this week? If you dare write in your Bible, if you're one of those people, I hope that you underline the fact that when you turn to Daniel 4, that that line jumps out at you. Never forget. May you always acknowledge, like Daniel said, that the voice said, heaven rules. Heaven is in charge. Daniel goes on to say, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. What does Daniel try to say to him? Nebuchadnezzar, repent now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait. Today is the day. Repent, renounce your sins, because that could make a very big difference on your future. Look how Daniel said, listen to my advice. Be pleased to accept my advice. I, I would dare say that, Daniel, this is a pleading kind of Otherwise, Daniel wants to say, it's going to happen. It's going to happen just like he said. But you've got an opportunity right now. How often don't we think that there's plenty of time? That we don't acknowledge that today is the day that we make things right. Or I'll wait for this or that or how many humpting excuses. This story alone, you should hear Daniel's advice. Well, I wish he'd have listened. What a different story it would have been. But he didn't listen at that time. So, I mean, if this isn't another section about grace... Because, yeah, I always kind of thought when I heard this story before, I always thought that right away, Nebuchadnezzar turned into this freaky animal-like thing. But as I see this, the way that the truth comes out, he ignored it. He ignored Daniel's advice. That's another thing what pride will do. Nah, I'm just going to put this out of my mind. No, that dream. Ugh. And he didn't do a thing about it. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months, 12 months later. I'll tell you, we are living in the age of grace. But as you see in this story, 
Don't ever underestimate that there will be a time that he pulls the rug of mercy and grace from underneath and says there is no more and it will be too late. Now I know those are things that I don't I don't want to hear that. I don't want to I don't want to talk about that. We have to. These lessons are in here for Nebuchadnezzar to be warned and prepared and ready for. So we must. We can't ignore. Now just watch Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, not only has he forgotten all about this dream and Daniel and the interpretation, he has so gotten back to he being sovereign. Because look what he says. Is, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I mean, didn't, didn't that just make you gag? I mean, after hearing the words from Daniel, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Repent now. Right over his head. That's the power of self. Don't kid yourself. It's powerful. And so for a whole year, and then as he's praying across the roof and he's claiming all, all for himself, his own majesty, we have a sovereign God in heaven who I can just hear him say, that's it. Now he's going to experience exactly what I said was going to happen. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. See, this is not a vision this time. This time Nebuchadnezzar heard a voice from heaven. That had to be chilling. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, so immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like cattle. His body was trenched with dew of the heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Creepy. I'll tell you. This is what you call unconditional love. God will do what he has to do. And I mean, this is quite severe, but I've got to tell you, I bet it got his attention. I wonder if he ever was, I wonder if he ever looked in the mirror. I wonder, I'm sure he had to look at his, at his, his fingers and he sees claws. I'm sure he went to comb his hair and it was like feathers. 
And I bet he remembered. All of a sudden, the things that he put out of his mind, not important. All of a sudden, reality set in. Well, after seven years, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. What did you think when you read that? My goodness, is God loving? Is God grace-filled? Is he filled with mercy? Is anyone impossible to save? I mean, look, all of a sudden it took seven years to complete Nebuchadnezzar, to humble him, to strip him of that pride. Can I just say right now, I hope you believe me when I say this from this lesson, that if you don't humble yourself before the Lord, he will humble you. This is just what everybody needs. Because in our sinful human nature, we are pride-filled. And we need to be humbled, every one of us. And this is what he loves about humility. He loves, in fact, in Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said these words, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself before me will be exalted. Proverbs 3, 34, in the Good News Translation, puts it so good. It says, God has no use for conceited people, but shows favor on those who are humble. James 4, 6, James is quite blunt. Of course, he always is in five little chapters. James was very blunt. God resists the proud. And that should raise the hair on your arm to think that God would resist you. But he will resist the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. So we have enough proof from the Old Testament and the New Testament to see what God expects and what God will do whatever he has to to get us to know that he's suffering, but he's in it all. Then I, then, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can question him. Has there been a transformation in Nebuchadnezzar from the previous chapter where a 90-foot image is erected and everybody is supposed to bow down to him. And if they're not, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. But God, rich in grace and mercy, comes back for him again and does what he has to do to get his attention. Cut him down to the stump. But let the roots 
the life-giving roots still be there gives them gives him hope and another chance at the same time that my sanity was restored my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom my advisors and nobles sought me out and i was restored to my throne and became even greater than before now when i read that i got a little concerned Because it sounded like, oh, no, there he goes back. But he was just stating a fact, kind of like Job. Remember, at the end of Job, Job was restored double of what he had before. Nebuchadnezzar is just talking about the blessings of God when we do it his way. So it wasn't that he was falling back to his own own prideful self because the next verse proves that. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I think this is one of the best lessons, one of the most exciting chapters in Scripture to prove what the gospel, what Jesus can do in a life and how much we are loved and how many times God keeps coming back for us. But we should never get lazy and lax in that, thinking that, well, we'll do it tomorrow. Because I think we've all lived long enough to know that a split second our lives can be changed. So whatever we have to make right, we make a right now. But I'd like you, as we finish tonight, I'd, I'd like for you to turn to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. I think... It's so good to go Old Testament, New Testament, and see how they're all entwined together. This is, this is what Peter has to say. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you in wholesome thinking. Don't you appreciate Peter writing that? Because he knows human nature, because he's human. And he knows that every once in a while we can veer off course and we can get a little spiritual cocky or we can get a little prideful or we can think a little too highly of ourselves. And so he says, I'm writing these two letters to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, to get you back on track, getting you back, seeing yourself the way you truly are, to see God the way he truly is. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
want you to remember. I want you to recall. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. I think we're going to run into religious, um, sarcastic people. I think we're going to run into people who poke fun of when we talk about that Jesus is coming and he could be coming soon. And they will just always want to throw sticks or stones at you and to play that sarcastic game. Well, where is he? I remember hearing one time someone say, even back hundreds of years, Paul said, he's coming. Apostle John said, he's coming soon. So, where is he? Peter is saying, you're going to get people like that who are going to undermine who God really is and that his timing is his timing and he can come back when he wants to. Not a minute early, not a minute late, but every day is a day closer. He said, just, just be ready that there's going to be people that will say things like that. But look what he says. They will deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Oh, they are going to forget about Noah, that these waters also, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are, re are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Apparently, they forgot to read the last book of the Bible. They forgot to read Revelation 19. Or they just passed it off as, ah, just a bunch of symbolism. Peter says, I'm writing these letters to stimulate you that you don't fall into those traps because I'll tell you, unless you are walking with the Lord, they can sound so convincing. And our little human engineers want to hear what they've got to say because they're the same voices that say, Oh, God is a God of love. Don't let anybody tell you about a hell because in the, in the end, guess what? He saves everybody. Peter wants us to know that's blasphemy. Oh, you're going to want to hear stuff like that because like we learned tonight, you don't want to hear about the judgment. But this story, all compacted into one chapter, it really tells us the whole truth. And I don't think that it is a denominational problem. I don't think it's an interpretation problem here. 
I mean, many of us are from different church denominations. Many of us come with a lot of different interpretations of Scripture. But I think this is one chapter. I don't know how you can interpret it any other way. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I got a story for you. This is the truth. This is what I heard. This is what I did in my pride. And this is what he said what happened. And Peter is saying, I'm just writing to make sure that you didn't forget about Daniel chapter 4. That you know these are the real words of God. This is, these are the terms he set up for the world. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Verse 8. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. He's got a whole different kind of timetable. That's what I want to say to those golfers. You can be as sarcastic as you want. But God is working on a timetable. And to him, a thousand years are like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. And I have no idea what that means. But I trust his timetable is perfect. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. Why hasn't this world gone up in a puff of smoke already? Because Peter says, I want you to know you have a grace-filled God. And he is saying to you, get busy. Because the rug is going to be pulled out. And there will be a time when it's too late. But right now, I am slow. I am patient. Because I know people, you know people, that are not saved. And as long as we have the opportunity, he said, get busy. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. But did you notice the absolute Peter uses? But everyone, everyone has to come to repentance. Everyone needs to be humbled before a sovereign God. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You've known that, I know that. You can, you can plan, you can hear people plan. It's going to be such and such a day. It's going to be such and such a day. But right there, it says that he's going to come like a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And that's just not pick and choose which days you want to do that on. In the rest of the days of the week, you can just live the way you jolly well want. You ought to live holy and godly lives. I would just love to insert there 24-7. 
But Peter goes on, you should live godly and holy lives as you look forward, as you look forward to the day. As you look forward to the day in speed it's coming. When was the last time you said, bring it on? Bring it on, Lord Jesus. This sounds pretty exciting to me. And you know, it's a, this chapter is kind of a test, I think. Because Peter is assuming that we're in a right walking relationship with the Lord. And he's saying, I'm writing this to keep you there. So that you don't move off track. Even though there's going to be many people that are going to come at you and you're going to be tempted to follow because they're going to be so convincing and your itching ears want to hear what they got to say. But Peter is basically assuming that you and I are looking forward to. We are excited about it. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're not so excited about it and you're not really looking forward to it because you're a little nervous, in fact, maybe you even dare say, I'm downright terrified about this. What do you mean this earth is going to go up in fire and all the elements are going to be melted? If we aren't excited, then maybe we don't know the Lord as good as we thought we did. Maybe we don't know the meaning of the cross as much as we thought we did. Maybe, just maybe, our faith isn't quite as big as we thought it was. Maybe we really don't know him as good as I profess I do. Because when you really know him, according to Peter, you're excited. You can't wait. You're saying, bring it on. So, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, You ought, to live, you, ought to live, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. The day is, will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. God, we should be on the seats dancing right now because this is, this is ours. This is what we got to look forward to. Revelation 21 spells it all out. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless. Make every effort to be blameless and at peace with him. Make every effort. Don't you like that? That means it's going to take work. It's hard to commit to Bible study. It's hard not to panic at the news. It's just natural for ourselves to run in fear. But Peter is saying, no, that's not necessary. Because everything you need to know is all secure. You are his child. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. 
He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. Isn't that the truth? Because when Paul wrote to the people of Thessalonica, don't you remember when he said these words? And the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. I know I quote that a lot. But see, we're not supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to be encouraged. We're supposed to be looking forward to it. We're supposed to say, bring it on. Anytime's fine. I have been warned. I've been prepared. I'm ready. Peter says, Paul also writes the same way in all his letters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort and they do and they do the other scripture as they do with other scriptures to their own destruction. So many times Paul's writings get distorted. So many times certain portions of scripture get ignored because people don't want to address that. So Peter ends his two letters by saying, therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard. Boy, since we've been here tonight and we have gone through Daniel chapter 4, we have been warned. We have seen it visual from Nebuchadnezzar's story. There isn't a one of you that can walk out of here saying, I don't get it. And so I think that's what Peter wants us to leave here with. Now that you know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the air of lawless men and fall from your secure position, your secure position in Christ Jesus. Remember, no one or nothing can snatch you from the Father's hands once you're his child. But don't let people lie to you and tell you that you, that you, and begin your doubting process. Don't ever doubt this word. But he ends by saying, but grow. Instead, keep growing. Keep, keep maturing. You've got to keep growing in what? And maturing in what? In the grace. In the grace and the knowledge. You've got to get to know him better. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him. To him be glory. To him be glory. Both now and forevermore. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. I know I say that every week, but every lesson has got something that we need to hear that will affect our heart condition, 
Lord, maybe some of us need to be cut down to the stump tonight. Maybe all that you're going to leave is roots. Maybe our trial and our suffering is just, we've gotten to the point where we just don't know where to go. And you're saying, come to me. There's always hope. Paul says that our hope is Jesus and he will never disappoint us. Father, we need to make every effort to keep our walk with you in its right place. Because it's very obvious what can happen otherwise. So Lord, tonight it's been a great hour. And now let every one of these words just penetrate to our heart and make a difference. And like I said, my prayer was that there's no one that leaves here the same as when they came. Because they're that much more secure. They're, they're that much more sure of you. Father, may we hunger and thirst for more. May, like Peter say, may we keep growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Our Bibles are loaded with more promises and truths and instructions so that we can live life abundant, looking forward to our home. Our home. I just love the song that you let me sing for years, going home, going home. There's nothing that can hold me here because I've caught a glimpse from your word of that promised place. So thank God I know I'm going home. May we start daring to say, bring it on, Lord Jesus. We are secure in your timetable. And we pray this all in our Savior's name.